I'm lying on the rough, uneven pavement, and I can feel the heat searing my back. I've noticed that the white lines on the road, usually a blur from a car window, look oversized and bulky close up. I reach over and touch the white. It's like a dash on the road, longer than the length of my arm. I fan out my arms to take up as much space as I can on this street. I want to own it, if only for a moment, just because I can. I look up at the clear blue sky and am overcome with the sensation that I'm Alice in my own kind of distorted wonderland. I turn my head to the left and to the right. Footsteps, bicycle tires. A kid flits by, her skipping rope rhythmically hitting the pavement as she makes her way down Bloor Street. She's distracted and singing a little tune that I can almost make out as she fades into the distance. And then it hits me. The silence. The city is eerily silent. The city feels hushed, like it has become, if only for a moment, if only for a few hours on this special day, a sacred place. It's 11 a.m. Sunday morning on August 17th, 2014, and like any other morning, this downtown intersection in the heart of a city of 2.8 million people is alive. But unlike every other morning, the only vehicles passing through the intersection are bikes, not cars. The sounds ricocheting off the walls of surrounding condo and office towers is muted. Honking and screeching brakes have been replaced with the voices of children, with salsa music. People populate the street, laying down yoga mats and joining into prearranged classes, grabbing chalk and scratching out love notes, some to the city itself, or simply sitting in the middle of the street, contemplating a new perspective on city life. This is Open Streets TO, an event that has been billed as Toronto's largest free recreation program. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. In this episode, we explore the opportunity and the hope of cities designed for people as captured by the Open Streets Movement. Open streets, what does it mean for a street to be open? Aren't most streets open in our city most of the time? Often, by design or by their pre-described use, sadly, they're not. In urban places like King Street in downtown Toronto, vehicles use up 64% of the space in the street right-of-way, but only move 16% of the people who use the corridor on a daily basis. Open streets are about shifting the balance, if only for a few days or a few hours of the year, by making streets open for every other use and for all people. You don't need to pay a fee, you don't need to buy something to linger, you can just come and use the street as you are, whoever you are. The street becomes completely, refreshingly available to all. Should social activity take place on a street? In some ways, this brings us back to the heart of our objective in creating cities and streets in the first place. Cities are places to thrive, to live. They are driven by commerce and collaboration. But at their heart, cities are a way to organize ourselves and our resources, such that cities are really about sharing. What will we share? What won't we share? 
I go back to the question, should social activity take place on a street? Really, streets can be, as open streets demonstrate, our most shared spaces in the city. Remember, it's only a very, very recent phenomenon that has resulted in streets as primarily places for cars. This is new, and some would argue that it hasn't worked out so well. I'm one among them. In its most noxious circumstances, and sadly this is increasingly the case in my city of Toronto, streets for cars has resulted in senseless, unnecessary death in the city, challenging the security and safety of everyday life to its very core. So open streets are not frivolous. Open streets are about the essence of our city building and the life that we share in common in cities. Safe, shared spaces that create shared experiences and opportunities to thrive is, or should be, at the root of our city building. Open streets present an opportunity to revision, to rewrite, to redraw the city, to imagine what the city could become, how it might evolve not only if we design it differently, but also importantly, if we choose to use it in a different way than we have in the past. The Complete Streets movement is about exactly this, recognizing our streets as critical shared assets. Designing Complete Streets is about accommodating a range of users, pedestrians, cyclists, and transit as a priority by rejigging the current imbalance in the right-of-way, which in most cities, on most streets really values the role of vehicles and undervalues the role of pedestrians and cyclists. Complete Streets is about acknowledging this imbalance and then making design choices that seek to rectify it. But the Open Streets movement is also about turning our streets into paved parks, if you will, replacing that very car traffic with people traffic, allowing participants of all ages, abilities, social, economic, and ethnic backgrounds to share experiences and to share space. To understand how, during the summer of 2014, amidst a fiercely fought mayoral election and under the most car-unfriendly mayor Toronto has seen in decades, a small group calling themselves Open Streets Toronto launched a program that closed off five kilometers of major roadways for recreation. We need to go back more than 20 years and travel more than 4,000 kilometers. I'm Emily Monroe. I'm the executive director of 880 Cities, and I'm on the working group of Open Streets Toronto. Bogota is a really interesting example because it is kind of the program that many cities around the world are trying to emulate. The program has been around for a very long time. It started in the 70s, but it was very small. It was only about 12 kilometers when the program started. And there was a new administration that came in in the 90s, which included Gil Penalosa, a well-known Torontonian and advocate for more people-friendly cities. And when he joined that administration, he was the commissioner of um, sport and recreation, and he recognized that this little tiny kind of um, nascent program of 12 kilometers could be something that was really important and influential in the city. So in his role, he worked with city staff and the administration to expand the program. But he is a very big thinker and he he wanted to see this um, expand in a significant way. So over the course of a, a few years, he grew the program from about 12 kilometers to closer to what it is now, which at this point is around 100 kilometers. 
Voters. And it's a program that closes, uh, well, opens the street, as we like to say, to people every single Sunday of the year, every holiday, and now they see upwards of around a million people come out every Sunday of the year. So Bogota, as you can imagine, is a big, complex, bustling city. It's it's a, a city with significant traffic problems. It's a city where they face a significant amount of um, inequality, a place where not everybody has access to recreation and sports facilities, and a place where um, there is a major socioeconomic divide between um, different groups within the city. So one of the main drivers behind the program was connecting people and communities, literally and figuratively through the program. So connecting very poor communities with much more affluent communities and um, driving some social interaction between those spaces. One of the big dream that Gil had was he, he knew about Central Park. He knew that when Olmsted created Central Park, the idea was to create a place in New York City where people could meet as equals. It was a completely public space. And in Bogota, they didn't have the luxury at the time of building a new Central Park in the city. But he recognized that something like an open streets program, where you connected vast communities and vast sections of the city, that could be something that they could provide as an administration that would help to build those social connections across the city. So one of the big drivers for sure was social connectedness and then of course an opportunity for people to get physically active in an affordable way and um, three to help people think differently about how they get around their city and what their city can look like and that's had major long-term impacts in terms of the changes that have occurred over time. It's a city that um, many people in the in the world of urban planning are looking to as an example they've implemented a world-class bus rapid transit system. They have um, physically separated cycle tracks throughout much of the city, and they have uh, extremely well-managed parks and, and um, public spaces in many areas of the city as well. And the Bogota Ciclovia was something that helped to build that culture of acceptance towards some of these major changes that came in the administration uh, that followed Gil. It was actually his brother, Enrique Penalosa, who was the mayor and um, had, a, had a very successful uh, administrative term, and actually he was just re-elected um, a year and a half ago. From Bogota, the open streets concept quickly spread across South and Central America. Dozens of cities in Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Costa Rica, Ecuador, Guatemala, Mexico, and Peru have founded their own programs. Identified by the World Health Organization as a model intervention for promoting accessible, safe physical activity, as well as encouraging healthy, active lifestyles, the appeal of low-cost open streets programs to developing nations struggling with obesity epidemics is obvious. Clearly, we are faced with the opportunity to repurpose existing assets, such as our streets, in such a way as to literally bring recreation right to people's front doors for pennies on the dollar. But as open streets programs started popping up in more and more cities around the globe, North America remained a question mark. With a built form predicated on automobile use, would it be possible for these initiatives to even get off the ground in Canada or the United States, much less thrive? To answer that question, we look to Los Angeles, the poster child for car-oriented cities. I'm Romel Pasquale. I'm the executive director of Ciclavia in Los Angeles. It started 
late 2008, there were a group of uh, Angelinos and a group of advocates who had just come back from Bogota and essentially were inspired by Bogota's ciclovia and came back to Los Angeles thinking that, hey, we can do something very similar to what Bogota had done. And, and that was late 2008 and early 2009. And they went and met with the city of Los Angeles, with the mayor's office at the time. And then I served, I was the deputy mayor of Los Angeles focused on energy and environment during that time, and they had met with me and essentially had laid out an idea of doing an open streets event. You know, in, in, the, in the minds of the public sector, when you say open streets, you essentially say your clothing streets. And so there was, a, there was some level of, um, not necessarily apprehension, but really a certain level of opportunity and excitement that, you know, for a car city like L.A., uh, opening the streets up to pedestrians and cyclists and not to cars was a very intriguing one. And at the time, we said yes. And uh, since then, you know, it's grown from having the first Sikla Via on October 10th, 2010, to having the 18th Sikla Via on Sunday, August 14th, 2016. So um, it's come a long way. Sikla Via has had a direct influence of how we talk about our transportation systems. And certainly a direct uh, correlation to our funding is being dedicated towards um, a more robust public transit system. You know, we have a half-cent sales tax measure that's going to be up for the ballot. And, you know, this looks at you know, $100, $120 billion worth of investment for public transit. And there is some uh, portion of that being used for active transportation. And, you know, the, the conversation of what does active transportation look like, and if one were to take a picture, they would take a picture of Ciclovia, because it does represent what it means for uh, folks not just to be active, but folks to be inspired to use other modes of transportation. So there has been this direct influence. And, you know, L.A. is the car capital of the world. But what L.A. is also known for is really taking things to scale. You know, when you think about, you know, the second largest city in the U.S., um, we tend to not do things at a very small level. You know, the Ciclovia Open Streets event in L.A. have become one of the largest in the country. But it's also been quite um, impactful in some of the other measurements of how we measure the sustainability of cities. You know, when we do a, any ciclovia, we see 50% reduction in, in harmful air emissions for that day. You know, we see that local businesses and their sales increase by nearly 60%. And we see that about 50% of the folks um, who attend would have otherwise just sat home not moving um, so we encourage a sense of movement and physical activity. And, and it mirrors the um, demographics. Uh, any ciclovia, you see the, the, the demographics of what the L.A. region is at any one of the ciclovias. So we have this really interesting effect, not just people gathered together, but all of those other measurements that measure quality of life. 
And, you know, one of the more interesting measurements is that at any Ciclovia Sunday, crime is reduced by 40% compared to non-Ciclovia um, Sundays. So there's so many benefits when you bring a whole bunch of folks together under one common umbrella of really connecting our communities. The things we talked about about sustainability, it all kind of manifests. It all kind of shows itself all in one day. LA Seek La Via is just one standout program amongst a multitude of open streets initiatives in the U.S., including Atlanta's Streets Alive, Portland's Sunday Parkways, and San Francisco's Sunday Streets. But what about the financial and cultural beating heart of America? New Yorkers are notoriously unafraid to express their opinions, and nothing gets them more energized than their streets. On an island as dense as Manhattan, where every square foot of real estate carries an astronomical price tag, could closing streets to cars ever be accepted as a positive? My name is Danny Simons. I was the former Director of Strategic Communications for the New York City Department of Transportation, where I helped get the Summer Streets program started for New York City. And today I serve as the Director of Communications for Motivate. Uh, We run bike share systems uh, all across North America and around the world. The idea for Summer Streets really grew out of the New York City Department of Transportation uh, when Jeanette Sadi Khan was the commissioner, and it's been continued um, with her successor, Commissioner Trottenberg, um, and and continues to kind of build out and evolve and grow. Um, Summer Streets came about because DOT was really trying to advance a policy agenda of rebalancing the streets um, and giving more street space over to people who walk and bike. Um, and and kind of making sure that they had safe and comfortable spaces in the city for them. Um, And I think to that extent, it made sense that this initiative was owned by DOT. And I think that also provides Summer Streets with some other advantages in that, you know, DOT has staff uh, and has the authority to do things like street closures and permitting of street events. Um, We had to work closely with um, New York City because it's so large, has a citywide uh, special events office. And so we worked very closely with them on all of the permitting and coordinating and finding dates that weren't going to conflict with a lot of the other events that happen in New York City so that we weren't, you know, picking a day where there were 20 other street festivals um, and really and really making sure that we were coordinating with them. And then they help coordinate with a lot of the different um, agencies within within New York City government. Um, but, you know, I think for, for New York, the DOT is a good fit. I think, you know, in other cities, it really depends sort of how this evolves. If it's a health initiative and, and that's what the elected officials really care about and that's a big priority for the city, maybe it sits with a health department. Um, it could very well sit with a more centralized uh, city agency if it's part of a mayoral initiative and a mayoral agenda, you know, and the mayor's office really wants to take ownership of it and kind of shepherd all of the different players. I think that could work as well. I think it really... It probably depends a lot about what the goals of the city are at the time. I think summer streets really help New Yorkers reimagine how we allocate street space. And I think it helped people get more comfortable that street space could be allocated to pedestrians and to cyclists and to buses. And it, and it helped pave the way for a massive expansion of the bike network in New York City. Uh, the creation of new pedestrian plazas, both in Times Square and Herald Square, but also in neighborhoods all around New York City. 
for the creation of protected bike lanes, again, some in Manhattan, but now they're going in all across the city and people more and more are expecting them and asking for them in their neighborhoods, which is really incredible to see. It's not something that's just confined to the Manhattan core. It's something that's really, really spread across the whole city. Um, and, I, and I think it helps people kind of change the way they think about streets. And over time, I think that Summer Streets has continued to grow and evolve, and I think it's fantastic now. There's still tons of uh, great opportunities for people who just want to walk the route or run the route or bike the route. Um, but I was there this weekend, and I think DOT has taken it, and really they also have a whole agenda around urban art, uh, which also helps create better spaces for people who are walking in the in New York City, and, and they've really integrated their urban art program into Summer Streets, and it's attracting a whole new audience to come out and explore the city because they want to find these these hidden pockets and these amazing installations that the city is doing. Um, and it's really cool to see how it continues to kind of advance and grow and how it can continue to kind of mold itself to different uh, and evolving policy agendas for the city. And I think that that's, I think that's really fantastic. Um, this weekend coming up, uh, the city is actually going to extend summer streets and um, they're actually going to be closing a bunch of streets in lower Manhattan and doing something they called shared streets, which is kind of uh, an experiment to see if they can do uh, very, very low traffic kind of shared street spaces in lower Manhattan for a few hours after summer streets to kind of demonstrate that concept. Um, and I think it becomes a canvas for kind of testing out some interesting new policy ideas um, as, as things grow and change in cities. Key to the success of both Seek La Via and summer streets has been political leadership, which brings us back to that morning of August 17th, 2014. How did the Open Streets concept come to Toronto? How did it ever get off the ground? My name is Kristen Wong-Tam. I am a Toronto City Councillor and I represent Ward 27, Toronto Centre, Rosedale. It was a, a, a trip, a winter vacation actually to Mexico. Uh, I made a day trip from Ajiji to Guadalajara and specifically to ride what is called the Ciclovia there. Um, and... Uh, what I found to be uh, my observations was that it was a sleepy Sunday morning in what is a very busy uh, metropolis, uh, but because it was still quiet and it was still the morning on a weekend, uh, the roads were turned over to people and closed temporarily to cars. And the uh, social activity on the street was actually quite informative for me to, to observe. So we had a lot of uh, people, uh, all ages, all uh, all uh, abilities. You couldn't tell who was rich or poor, and all they were doing was engaging in physical activity. And I think in terms of Mexican culture, uh, there was a lot of families out. So I saw uh, what would probably be senior citizens and grandmothers uh, riding their bicycle with you know young grandchildren, probably uh, the age of uh, eight or nine years old, and they had a, a route of over sixty kilometers. And so I was uh, on a bicycle myself, and I got to sort of ride through a number of what they would probably call burls, and really got to see um, a city that was quite uh, polarized because you know most cities have have uh, communities of have and have not suburbs and urban cores, um, but. This city for that day during their uh, Ciclavia Open Streets Sunday program was completely knitted together uh, simply by using the existing roadways that they already have built and spent money on. And uh, I found it to be a very inclusive uh, and socially engaging uh, program. Uh, and I would uh, say that 
I wanted to bring this program back to Toronto right away. So um, my trip to Guadalajara was back in 2011. It was the era of Rob Ford, uh, our previous mayor. And there was a, a lot of uh, polarization in the city uh, between what we call, you know, the, the suburban, suburban mindset and the urban mindset. And I thought, you know, here was one activity that we can all get involved with and, and do it fairly easily because all we do is uh, you know, temporarily close down the streets to vehicles and open it up to people activity, whether they were cycling or doing Zumba classes and, and, uh, and, and yoga classes. Everyone could participate. No one had to buy a gym membership. It was, it was a great social equalizer. And, uh, and of course, uh, when I came back, um, that's what I started to do. I started talking about open streets and, and people would ask me, what do you mean? What, how would we do this? And so there were a lot of logistical questions that had to be answered in a North American uh, context because we're not obviously uh, a Mexican city. Uh, but I think the ingredients uh, and the factors all remain the same. You've got people who are relatively um, uh, inactive and in the city of Toronto, we've got almost 60% of Torontonians that could be more active. So they should be more active and should be healthier. Uh, we have t um, almost 30% of children living with obesity, and of course that comes with other health impacts. Um, and uh, we don't have uh, unlimited dollars to build new community centers. So is there a way for us to be much smarter with the infrastructure we have to actually build out those physical programs? But it was a lot of explaining. And, uh, and trying to get people's attention on open streets, uh, especially in, in this building that I work in, City Hall, uh, trying to explain to them that there was a program that they can get involved with uh, was not necessarily easy because they had never seen it before in the city of Toronto. And they thought it was just absolutely crazy to propose closing the street under a very uh, pro-car administration. My name's Jeff Chong. I'm the managing director of Open Streets TO, and my company, Sports Focus Consulting, uh, also owns other events like the Toronto Triathlon Festival. Open Streets TO uh, came together really born out of 880 Cities and Councillor Wong Tam. Uh, 880 Cities, uh, I believe, uh, from the province of Ontario, had a grant to build out open streets uh, concept in four um, cities in Ontario, one of which was Toronto. The executive director at the time, uh, Gil Penalosa and Councillor Wong Tam knew each other quite well, so they intimately involved themselves in advancing this uh, within City Hall and in uh, Toronto as a city. Open Streets TO was struck as a working group of volunteers, uh, two of whom, two of the main people on that working group being employees, uh, senior employees at 880, 880 Cities among others. And I got brought on uh, by Councillor Wong Tam to meet the working group because um, I could bring to bear the sort of leadership and operational experience that I have and some of the other things I've done. Um, so that would have been uh, sort of February of 2014. And as you quickly do the math and realizing that our pilot program, our first year was in 2014 in August, it didn't give us a lot of time to sort of help organize things um, to get it to where it was, uh, where we are quite proud of uh, with the pilot program for Open Streets. So that's sort of the genesis of, of, of Open Streets. If you kind of rewind the clock to, you know, late 2013, early 2014, the then administration, um, there were some challenges with what we represent 
as a program with the administration at the time. And, um, you know, we, we worked as collaboratively as we could with leadership from the councillor, um, with people at City Hall, um, specifically with the former city manager, as well as the uh, chair of the Economic Development Committee, providing leadership internally here to help move us forward. Because obviously it was something that contemplates closures of iconic streets like Bloor and Young in downtown Toronto. You need to have not only stewardship, but some understanding of the virtues of what we're doing. Um, you know, it did come together rather late, which is the hallmark really of any big event, no matter what anybody might tell you. There's always things that come together late. To give you a, a feel for how things came together for Open Streets TO for our pilot program year, we didn't send out our press release for the first event, which was mid-August, until July 23rd. So three weeks to build a brand and to try to attract people out in numbers that we could use to justify the road closures was um, a challenge that we took on head on, but we'd be lying if we said there wasn't an, an, an element of trepidation as well. Um, so we're really proud of where we ended up getting to. In 2014 for our pilot program year, we had 20,000 plus out for both uh, August and September, the two dates that we had um, on stretches of Young and Bloor. Uh, and then to bring you up to speed in 2015, our second year, um, again, two dates, uh, one in August and one in September. We had 25,000 people out for the first date and 28,000 uh, out for the second date. As we move closer to our two uh, program dates in 2016, we're hoping to get more uh, than 30,000 people out for each. Uh, and to clarify what the route is for this year, each year uh, the route has expanded. This year we will feature for the first date, which is on August 21st, uh, Bloor Street between Dufferin and Parliament and Young Street between Bloor and Queen. And then for the second date, which is on September 18th, Bloor uh, will go from Dufferin to Hampton, which importantly we would point out uh, crosses the Bloor Street Viaduct. So we will be the first non-Pan Am Games related event to have a full closure of uh, the viaduct for an event. And then the Young Street Strip stays the same uh, between Bloor and Queen. Any city that is experiencing significant growth struggles with congestion. Commutes continue to get longer and rush hour traffic is endless. To accommodate growth, investments need to be made in transit, but gains must be made to accommodate active transportation as well, that is, walking and cycling. We need to rethink how we use our existing infrastructure. This may sound frivolous, but it's not. 25% of our land area in the City of Toronto is, in fact, our streets. Most North American and European cities aren't much different. But using them differently, using them to improve as opposed to detract from how we move, is low-hanging fruit. How we design and use our cities has a direct impact on our health and well-being, and open streets are a piece of this puzzle. They can have a transformative effect on cities, setting the stage for healthier, active lives and allowing us to reimagine our communities and, in some ways, ourselves. If we are to imagine our cities as a shared, sacred space, as places where we can be active, but where we can also safely rest and lie down, to take in both the silence and the activity of everyday life, Something, my friends, something has to change. I'm Jennifer Kiesmat, and this is Invisible City. 
Open Streets TO will be back on August 21st and September 18th, 2016. You can find more information online at openstreetsto.org. This episode was written by Brad Bradford and Jennifer Kiesmat and co-produced by Ryan Freeman and Jennifer Kiesmat. Many thanks to our special guests who not only spent time with us to record this podcast, but more importantly, who had the vision and tenacity to show us that our cities can be more to more people than they are today. Could you maybe do us a favor and if you like what you've heard, leave us a rating. Both Ryan and I would greatly appreciate it. Invisible City is a product of Freeman House, a creative agency based in my beautiful city, Toronto. Each episode of Invisible City features an original score by Freeman House. All of our episodes are on our website, invisiblecitypodcast.com.